Hi, you're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine, and I am joined today by... Matt Hendrahan. And Hayden Taylor. We're here again to discuss the headlines of the week, starting with this week's big launch, Google Stadia. Uh, its launch has been rocky, to say the least. Uh, people are receiving their physical units before they get their activation codes. Uh, not enough people are playing certain games like Destiny for PvP to be effective. There are a bunch of promised features that aren't available yet. Uh, I think my personal favorite stumble has been uh, Gene Park from the Washington Post posted this little video clip of him hitting the jump button in Destiny, and the character in the game jumped like a full second or two after he hit the <laughs> key, like a really obvious lag. Uh, Anyway, it's not impressive. And while personally, I think they can come back from this on a technology level, certainly, because it's Google, I think it might take a little more work to regain the trust of consumers. Uh, What about you two? Do you think they can make an easy comeback maybe like next year with Stadia Base or whatever? Yeah, I I think that there's there's just probably, there's quite a few different issues there, really. Uh, One of them is the logistical, just the way that the launch has been handled. Another is the the sort of the tech side of things. I I, I know, Hayden, you wrote the... um, our critical consensus article on, on Google Stadia and the way it's just generally been received across the tech press. What what was the feeling that you got from, from looking over all those reviews and people reporting their experience of using the product itself? Basically that it's just not finished. That it's that it's a it's a beta that you have to pay for. And I think one of the things that's really problematic about that is it's not a service that seems to be rewarding early adopters. If anything, it seems to be punishing them by there's there's no free service so i think you can only currently play if you have the stadia premium subscription and then there's about 22 games most of which are from sort of 2015 16 17 18 um so not many new games this year and most of them don't work as like they, they most of them don't operate on a, on a similar sort of part like a console game both in terms of like visual fidelity uh, which is notably lower than promised. Like uh, Stadia is promising like 4K, and out of every review I said, uh, out of every review I read, sorry, um, not one sort of critic reported that it came anywhere near 4K. I think uh, some people found that it being about 720p, um, which I don't think is necessarily a problem. Like the lower resolution, I think that's, I think given where the tech is right now, that's maybe that that would be a sacrifice I would be willing to make in order to have some certain games like on my phone or on my on my like crummy laptop. So I don't think that's as big a problem. And the consensus is definitely that it's still the best looking of the streaming services despite that. But there are a lot of performance issues and I think the the main problem is like there is a huge leap between a best case user and a worst case user. Uh, it doesn't have that uniformity of experience that you get on console where it doesn't matter what, uh, like kind of wh- where you're playing in the world, the gameplay is just fine. Um, and so when you have this this huge gap in experience with even kind of single player games, uh, that's a huge problem. I mean, one of the critics was about 45 minutes from Google's headquarters playing in uh, the Silicon Valley. That's where they lived or where their office was. And their experience is, as they noted, about as close to possible as like a best case user experience. And even then, they still found just like a little bit of lag, a little bit of latency. Um, and if you're playing out in in somewhere where you don't have, um, you know, like a hundred meg internet, you start seeing quite a notable decline in quality 
And I think Google suggests what? I think it's 10 meg minimum requirements, I think they suggest. Maybe it's a little bit higher. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't know if anyone played it on that lower connection in the reviews, but I can't imagine that would be a particularly smooth or rewarding experience. Um, from what I understand as well, it tends to, if, if it's struggling with the connection, it tends to stutter rather than adjust the quality of the image. Um, so yeah, it's just, it feels just like it's not there, that it's a beta that you have to pay for that doesn't reward early adopters. And yeah, it's got loads of potential. Like that's definitely one of the, the core themes with people like this is the best streaming service available, but it's still like half finished. It's half baked. It doesn't deliver on what it promises. And I don't know, in terms of like regaining sort of consumer trust, that's a that's a really hard one it it feels like maybe they they rushed it out the gate for black friday perhaps um and they would have been better spent delaying it by another six months or something like that so yeah i mean i, but, I don't know how much consumer trust has been lost exactly because this isn't like hmm, you know a new console from sony launching and it sells four million units on day one and none of them work right we don't know how many units have stayed with shit. And I can imagine that some people probably felt burned, but I, I don't think. I think I think the the, the most of the, the 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 negative image seems to be in the eyes of a lot of people that don't have Stadia and are just observing the kind of the reaction and seeing that it's not all it's cracked up to be. And it definitely does seem like it's not all it's cracked up to be. And actually, it's a weird um, it's a weird situation Google finds themselves in because. People who are likely to want to be early adopters of this kind of tech are probably, I would also say, quite likely to be less forgiving of the fact that, for example, 4K wasn't possible on day one. You know, but tech enthusiasts want the kind of the bleeding edge performance, and and a lot of the people that, that probably bought this are probably people that live, you know, in in high bandwidth areas that, that may have expected to get above 720p and for there to be no stutter, no lag, none of these things, and that not being in place uh, when it was ready to go, I think is kind of damaging for Google. And I think the issue with state, well, I think the issue from our side of things that we have to say is Google's so loose about what it is so you know in one package or in one promise you have destiny 2 in 4k on your phone on the other end of it it's connecting the billion people in india that don't have access to consoles and have bad internet connections i mean this is this is the dual promise of one piece of technology and it's just opposite ends of, of gaming experience so google's kind of covered itself a little bit there um, and one thing I've seen in, in people on you know on social media in defence of, uh, of Stadia is you know people are just being selfish in how they they respond to this stuff because what about what about the wider potential of Stadia as something that can connect connect people and bring games to people that have never had access to them before? But the, the question you've got to ask is if if you can. <laughs> I don't know if you can if you can barely run a game from three years ago with an excellent internet connection. What hope does it have of you know gamers in East Africa uh, doing doing the same? It, it seems like I don't. Stadia is here, and it seems like the only thing it really is good for is for people in high bandwidth areas playing paying sixty bucks for games that are probably ten dollars on every other store that exists 
Yeah, I I think that at least one large part of their problem is less the fact that it doesn't quite work as well as it should at launch, and more the fact that the the structure that they put in place around it for kind of what Hayden said, like this sort of extremely expensive paid early access thing. I think if the exact same product had come out and Google had marketed it as early access, um, you know, if you could just, you know, get into it like five bucks a month without having to pay like what over a hundred bucks for this full kit with like a Chromecast Ultra and, you know, all these uh, this special limited edition controller and like all these other like very unnecessary things, but still have the same thing marketed as early access said, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a slow rollout. We'll fully launch it next year, but we want to, you know, get you, get you in early. I think people would be a lot more forgiving of it. Um, but, but part of the problem is, you know, yeah, it's, 720p, not bad, but the fact is people are specifically paying for Stadia Pro to get 4K. There's going to be a free version coming out next year where if people want 720p, like that's just what they're going to get. So the fact that it you're buying in for this specifically for the high high fidelity, like the the really good graphical experience then and not getting it, then that really sort of makes me cynical about what the free experience is going to eventually be like. And I, I think back to like the original reveal of Stadia, um, I can't remember who it was who got on stage, but um, they got on stage and they said they said something like, "I'm not a gamer, you know, I don't I don't play games." And I keep thinking about that line, and I think this Google Stadia launch has very much not been the launch of a gaming product. Like yeah, Google then, has but, not. Yeah, but the problem is, of course, that the only people that would possibly sign up to it at this point in time are gamers, right? Appear people, not just gamers, but gaming early adopters, people that are interested in that. I mean, I I was a journalist back when the PS3, Xbox 360 generation, I just started when that generation was. And back then you had people sneering at 720p because 1080i was better. And to for, and fair enough, you know, like if, because um, um, on one level, you know, 720p streaming to a phone is, is pretty impressive stuff. But the problem is that Google really made a big deal out of 4K. Um, it's it's uh, it, it that's its message, and we can't you know we can't ignore the fact that that's a message that it sold us on the base of and, and it's a really interesting point you made, Rebecca, about you know if they hadn't charged all this money for it, and if it wasn't such an expensive monthly rate, maybe people would have been a little bit um, kinder to it. But like, you really do have to wonder why it did. You know, Google doesn't need to make money off it at this point in time. Um, I do wonder if they put this price on it almost to. Uh, throttle the amount of people that would conceivably sign up at this stage, you know, to, to limit the amount of people that would be putting stress on the service. I, I can't think of a single other reason to, you know, if you if you look at it like six to 12 months of, of uh, subscription money and the cost of the Founders Edition, you're talking the price of near enough a switch. Um, it's not a bargain. It's not, it's not, it's not kind of the promise of what streaming is supposed to be, right? which is remove the cost of the hardware, because there's, there's a reasonably high cost associated with Stadia at this point, I would say. For, for them, like, it's, it's a reasonably high cost for then a product that isn't actually currently that good either. Like for, you can get like a PS4 for like $200 and then there's like the PS4, um, I can't remember what it's called, like the Legacy Collection, where it's, you get like Bloodborne and God of War and all these great games for like $20. That's like a real value proposition. And that was the other thing. Um, people were sort of point comparing the Stadia subscription to like PlayStation Plus and Xbox Game Pass, which has got like better selection of games that like meet the sort of performance requirements to actually play them. 
and like the ten dollars a month that you get with the stadia it, it doesn't really offer you a huge amount except for maybe some like modest reductions on games that are massively overpriced for how old they are yeah yeah um, that's it, isn't it? You know, 60 and, bucks and this, for a for a three-year-old game at this point the way the way the game value comes down in terms of price at market but, for a digital crazy. copy as well that yeah. yeah a digital copy as well that you don't even necessarily own like your your ownership over that digital copy is really tenuous and google can take it away whenever so you're paying kind of 60 dollars to rent it for an indeterminate period of time kind of based on the whims of google yeah and i think that's the important that's an important point right the whims of google because i would be willing to cut Google a bit more slack in terms of how well the product itself works. I, I, I get that tech like this would, can be improved, that they can they can make it work better and so on, but there has been just a general air of chaos around the launch, um, just the logistics of it, the way I think Google just tweeted uh, today. Uh, so everyone should have their you know Stadia access codes now. So this... The product launched two and a half days ago, and <laughs> only now are people being able to access the hardware that's already in their hands. And one of the things it said over and over again on this Reddit, um, asking me anything they did, was, it's not a box, it's not a box, it's not a console. It's like, but, you know, this is these are the problems you would associate with a piece of hardware, right? Like this is, and, and that's not deliberate. This is quite why... You know, they chose to issue the access codes in this way. Why Why they couldn't have just been shipped out with the hardware. Maybe they thought it would be quicker to email people than send it with hardware, but then the hardware turns up first. It's just there is an air of things having gone wrong and not having gone according to plan. It's kind of unmistakable. So when you wrap that up along with the kind of the muted responses it's got, I mean, uh, I understand that the you know, there are optimists and pessimists, but I don't think it's even really a matter of whether or not you're naturally inclined to, to cut cut Google a break or like give it the benefit of the doubt that this is a launch that hasn't gone according to plan. I, I think that's quite clear. But the, fe- the features they thought would be ready have not been ready. The access codes didn't go out in time. It's just not, it's not great, even if the product worked absolutely perfectly and the value proposition was bang on. And both of those things are at least questionable as well. So it's definitely um, uh, far, far from perfect week for Google. Yeah, and I would support that point too, that, that this kind of thing's not going to plan feels like it's been going on for quite a while. Um, I There have been multiple moments in the, the lead up from, from the announcement of Google Stadia up to the launch where... It is. It has become. It, it, people have become aware either through a Reddit AMA or through somebody just finally asking the right question that a particular feature that they had been it maybe hadn't been explicitly stated that it was going to be available at launch, but Google had certainly led everybody pretty clearly to believe that it would um, be available at launch um, was not going to be there until you know sometime way in 2020 that we we don't know what it was. I remember there was a point where there was some serious confusion about whether or not you could get Stadia Pro as a separate subscription when the service launched, um, or if you had to buy a Founders Pack. And that wasn't really made clear until after the Founders editions were already almost entirely sold out. Um, there was the whole thing with like the the Bluetooth controller, I think, um, where it only works like on one of the, I think it only works with the Chromecast. Oh. It doesn't work with Bluetooth with like the Pixel or any of the other things. Um, there's just been all these moments like from, from March pretty much all the way to now where 
everybody was like, oh, we're really excited to do this thing. And then, you know, a month later it came out, oh, we're not actually going to be able to do this thing until who knows when, if ever. And so, yeah, it's, it's weird. I don't, I don't understand what their strategy has is supposed to be in terms of communicating these things to an audience, because it definitely seems like a lot of people who pre-ordered the Founders Edition on day one are not getting the thing that they thought that they pre-ordered. I mean, I am um, only when I was doing the, the critical consensus yesterday and kind of reading through all these reviews, did I actually get like a full picture of like what Google Stadia is with all of its different sort of packages and tiers and stuff like that, because it hasn't been very well communicated. You know, I knew it was like game streaming, but the way you actually kind of engage with that and what the pricing options and stuff are, it's all been quite confusing and it hasn't been very well put across. And it turns out as well, but currently, and I don't know if, if this is going to change, I haven't seen anything from Google about it, but currently you can only play it on mobile if you've got a Google Pixel, which also really undermines this idea of like games anytime, anywhere for anyone. And it's if you have a Google Pixel, which I don't know if they're going to stick with that in order to sell more like Google Pixel hardware. I mean, that strikes me as quite short-sighted if they do. Yeah, they're going but, to. I, I think they're going to expand it out. But a similar thing with the Chromecast Ultras. Like the only, I think the only Chromecast Ultras that will be able to support 4K, which, you know, that's a, another topic altogether, are Chromecast Ultras that ship with the Founders Edition. Because the Chromecast Ultra, if you've already got one, it won't have the latest firmware on it. Uh, right. support this so if you so if you're already a loyal google customer you can't access this experience you know it's it's a bit shambolic i think it's fair to say i i think ultimately like the google's kind of great error here is not selling it as a beta if they if they launched it as a as a very open sort of if they were very open about saying this is a beta it is still early we are going to be working on it kind of enter at your own peril then I think that's fair enough, but they haven't done that. And so they've kind of punished early adopters. They've punished people who already bought their hardware thinking like using it for something else. And it, I think that kind of just adds to like what a mess it's been is that they, I don't think they thought very carefully about messaging. And I guess, you know, this is Google's first time launching, I don't know, hardware like this, I guess, you know, they, they've, they've never launched anything like this before. Their involvement in the games industry previously has been very passive through like the Google Play Store and stuff. So it it kind of smacks a little bit of maybe a touch of naivety, perhaps. Yeah, I would say a naivety. I think the 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 notable thing is like what. So we've got the Founders Edition out now, um, premium, then basic or base or whatever it's called follows next year. Presumably, they saw this period of time leading up to the to the launch of the of the free, the more accessible tier next year, as a time to kind of, I suppose, make noise around it for, for people to kind of hear positive things about Stadia, to become more intrigued by what it offers and that kind of thing. Um, as you say, Hayden, as you point out, Rebecca, to to for people to have paid this. I think really the day one experience or the first week experience, the first month experience needed to be pretty far, far closer to a finished product than it currently is. Um, whether or not Google saw this as a sort of early access period for, for Stadia is not the point. It's, that's what it looks like now, whether it intended to or not. And I have serious doubts about whether Google really saw this as a kind of a paid beta. I think this might have been more 
an attempt to kind of drum up some real grassroots enthusiasm around Stadia and the technology, and it has so far at least failed to do so. And you know, I guess whether or not it can can build on from there and then and do at least some of what Google imagined it would do um, is one for the future. Do you think this is an opportunity for Microsoft or I guess Sony, if they're doing something to to sort of swoop in and kind of take on the conversation about streaming? We already know Microsoft has something, has their... Well, I, I think that it's difficult though, right? Because at least from what, you know, what's publicly available to people or it just, it, stages seem to be a very different proposition as Hayden suggested um, just then. It is. It still is a little bit difficult to grasp what Stadia even is, and I think we. It's easy to fall into the trap of saying, "Well, Sony can, you know, then boost PlayStation Now." But PlayStation Now is a completely different proposition. It's subscription, and that's not the same as Stadia. They're both streaming, but the business model is so different. The business model is actually the most definitive thing here. Like streaming can be used. Streaming technology can be used in all kinds of ways. It can be used in just how you. Specifically, like how you play and play a game just off a disc. You know, you can use streaming in the background to do certain things. Streaming is kind of a bit of a misnomer when it comes to this sort of stuff. Um, what what Microsoft and PlayStation seem to be far more interested in is catalog-based subscription services uh, made possible by streaming. Whereas this Google's thing, as Hayden has pointed out, is is more like a gaming on the go, gaming from anywhere, gaming with any device kind of proposition. Um, so I don't know if they're they're their ambitions line up in quite that way. I don't know. I think my question might still be fair, at least when it comes to Microsoft. I, I mean, I haven't looked into what the xCloud beta is, but we've heard we've heard a ton of people from Microsoft over the last year, you know, talk about things like how they want, you know, they want Xbox games on, you know, every device, um, and they they have this catalog um, with Game Pass. I know you're talking like, yeah, the business models are different, but I think one of the big issues with Google Stadia that has been an issue from the beginning is people look at that business model and they don't like it. They don't like the idea that they have to pay full price for games to stream. Like that's that's not an appealing business model to people. And yeah, you're right. Streaming can be used for a bunch of different things, but I think if if Microsoft in particular or or Sony, if they want to, or anyone else, could come out with you know, some kind of thing that even if it was limited, even if it didn't, you know, have kind of the mobile reach that Google has, but if they could come come around with something that has, you know, a business model that gives you sort of a catalog based thing, but also is, you know, many of the same things like, okay, you can play this instantly, you can play the same game from all these different devices, you know, with just the touch of a button, all these different things. I mean, I think that could really take a lot of the wind out of Stadia sales. Well, I think that's what Microsoft is looking at, though. You know, I think that, that is yeah. what no, you described yeah. is definitely what Microsoft's plan, well, they say definitely would appear to be, but Based on Game Pass and based on what we know about Xcode, that is exactly what Microsoft wants to do. But Microsoft, I don't think, would be thinking along the lines of, oh, well, people can stream a $60 game they just bought that sort of the license for which exists in a cloud until we turn it off. I'm not sure that's what Microsoft also would think, because they are just a bit smarter about the games business and about what games actually want. Um, um, stuff. I think... I think um... Xbox or Sony um, are in the best possible position to actually kind of make streaming tech work. I think they're further behind Google currently as it stands in terms of the actual sort of like technical technical capabilities. Because again, like I was saying, the um, Stadia is currently considered to be the best at what it does. But where we are technically at the moment, that's still not very good. But I think kind of the experience... 
I think you know the, the one of the big problems that like Google Google Stadia has here is like you know they launched with 22 games, which is that's not a bad amount to launch with for like a new console, I guess. But they don't have like these fast catalogs and of like great first party IPs. And one exclusive. Yeah, they've got one exclusive, which I think by Tequila Works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's you know that's great, like a cool little indie game, but. You know, your your average sort of game consumer wants like big titles like Halo or The Last of Us or Death Stranding or something like that. And those are, you know, that's something which like Sony and Microsoft can deliver on in a way that Google just can't. Like they've they're only they've got a couple of studios, I think, working on like big budget stuff, I think. Um, but that's like years down the line. And then they may not even be good. Like they don't have this legacy of sort of critically acclaimed much beloved games to sort of serve as like the foundation and the the like the grand allure for like tech like this so i think google stadia being the first one may even possibly actually be the thing that kind of dooms it not saying that it is doomed but i almost think like google will struggle to deliver on the in kind of every area that it needs to in order to actually make this work and that Sony and Microsoft are in a better position overall to actually kind of capitalize on on sort of the streaming market. Yeah, and beyond that, I think, you know, the important point there is whether Google will be able to get beyond the limits of its own patience with it if, if there isn't like a, you know, a sizable uptick in, in, uh, in interest and in uptake of its service next year because there will be a time quite well, you know, PlayStation now is in the midst of a much bigger public-facing push, and Microsoft is going to be showing its hand far more clearly next year as well. And by that time, Stadia really needs to have got a firm grounding in the market. Otherwise, I don't know quite what the future of it will be. And I don't know if we get to the point where we really see what Stadia's first party or third party or whatever else, what what that catalogue it seems to be at least trying to build at the moment. Um, will look like because that is as you say years down the line and will google stick with this for years when you know playstation now is super popular on the on the playstation 5 or microsoft um, shows it the way that you know x cloud and game pass are going to sync up and work across pc and console and, and windows mobile if that is even still a thing which it probably isn't um but you know what i mean you know uh, when all of these services really step up a gear which we expect to happen next year stadia needs to be something um and i, don't, I can't imagine it getting off to a less impressive start uh, than this week yeah i mean a lot of people are kind of talking about um google's like trigger happy approach when it comes to basically putting down services that that aren't meeting the sort of whatever arbitrary standard it is that Google has set and suggesting that that might be a case with Stadia that, that Google if it doesn't kind of take off and become this wonderful amazing thing fulfill all of their hopes and dreams that they will just kind of take it out to the back and shoot it and I don't think that's entirely out of the <laughs> entirely out of the question, but it it does seem kind of unlikely just given how big the games industry is um, and how much money they've already kind of profited from with like the mobile scene in particular. So, I th- I think even if this goes south, I don't 
I don't think it will be the end of Google's involvement in the games industry by any means. I think they're going to keep on trying to break into it and really capitalize on it because it is an insanely huge market and it's only getting bigger. And Google is, if it plays its cards right, it is really well positioned to make a ton of money out of it. I do think it will be very interesting. We we saw, you know, kind of with the Stadia launch, we saw several, you know, major publishers kind of sign on and sit, like, give it their confidence, say, here, we're going to put this many games on Stadia, this game's coming out on Stadia. Um, and that, that list originally looked pretty impressive. It's m- maybe a little bit less impressive when you get to launch. But I am very interested to see how much that extends into next year when a whole bunch of people are announcing games for the next generation of consoles, you know, brand new IPs coming out, you know, right then and there. I know we've got like Cyberpunk coming out on Stadia next year and I think like some Ubisoft stuff like Watch Dogs Legion. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to, to how far that will go and how many big new AAA titles coming out next year will, you know, have PS5, Xbox Scarlet and Google Stadia listed below them. Uh, the other big news story of the week uh, to move on was Valve returning to the Half-Life series with Half-Life Alex. Uh, it's a full-length VR title taking place between the first and second Half-Life games. Uh, it's free for Valve Index users, and it's coming... It's 60 bucks for everyone else. And it's coming March 2020. It's also not Half-Life 3, uh, which a lot of people seem to care about. <laughs> uh, but honestly, between uh, the Valve Index and Artifact and some of its handling of Steam controversies, I don't think Valve really needs to care what anyone thinks of anything it's making <laughs> at this point. Uh, what did you get? What did you think of uh, Half Life, Alex? Well, I think it looks great. I really, really like it. Does the look great. Um, I think it, uh, the whole when we get Half Life Three is run for the entire course of my career. Like I was, you know, reviewing <laughs> games when Episode One and Episode Two came out, and um, they were great. And I, I think Gabe Newell has gone on record saying he kind of wishes he'd just called Episode One and Episode Two. Half-Life 3, Episode 1, Episode 2, <laughs> rather than <laughs> making them part of, of, uh, of Half-Life 2. Then they just could have said, you know, when is uh, that, that when, when is Half-Life 4 coming out? And um, and I think that's kind of why this whole idea, this is not, you know, Half-Life 3. Well, you know, you, you've had two Half-Life 3s already in the episode, so there, there hasn't been a full Half-Life game in about, whatever it is, 16 years now, or something like that. So I think we can all just take... Whatever new Half-Life game is in effect, Half-Life Three, and I think that in and of itself is a. I mean, it's kind of I, it's kind of makes sense to me because it makes sense to me that the, the new Half-Life would be uh, in VR because Half-Life, the first game, was very very striking when it came out. Um, I remember it quite vividly. Um, we played plenty of first-person shooters, but there was a cinematic quality to it, the immersive storytelling. Like it really did feel like nothing else you'd ever played before. Half-Life 2 had a similar thing, you know, the gravity gun, the, the realistic physics. Um, again, the quality of the storytelling, the, the partner AI, the, the, the characters. I mean, Christ, it was, you know, 10 years later, we're at the moment of the lack of uh, good, uh, you know, interesting female characters, and Alex Vance was back there, all, all the way back then. And um, it was just a fantastic game. And what, but what they represented was genuinely trying to do new things and to push deeper into the craft of video games. And I think that's always been at the root of Valve's reluctance to, to make a third game. So they didn't just want to do Half-Life 2 
three, as it were, you know, just, just use the same tricks to, to further the story. Half-Life has always been about pushing technology and pushing craft in new directions. So this makes perfect sense. And I can only imagine lots and lots of people are absolutely furious because it looks amazing. The trailer looks amazing. And I can just see the kind of hardware that you would need to make it run at that fidelity. You know, like Rebecca, you've... You've got an index, but an index is not a cheap piece of equipment, and you need an equivalently priced PC to make that index work as well. So the price of entry to Half-Life, well, not three, but Half-Life Alex, <laughs> is possibly two thousand um, pounds. That's yeah. Well, the, at, at the highest, at the ideal level, I mean, yes. they they are bringing it out, and they they have committed. They've they've been saying this from the beginning. There was a lot of worries when this game was rumored that it would be, um, you know, exclusive for the index. But they've said from the beginning that they're not going to make any exclusive stuff for the index. Like everything they do is going to be for Steam VR, meaning like all PC VR hardware. So they're they're committed to that. But you're you're right that the the ideal experience, and I think like they haven't said anything about this tech wise, but they have. There were screenshots um, in the kit we were sent that were uh, the image name was Gravity Gloves, which I assume is going to be something like the Gravity Gun, but it's it, they're gloves. You wear them on your hands. And the whole thing with the Valve Index is they have that finger tracking technology and the grip sensitivity and all that other stuff. So I imagine there's going to be sort of an extra layer of like technology at work that makes particular use of the index controllers. There's actually, uh, Jeff Keighley did a, a final hours thing uh, with some of the Half-Life folks that went up the other day that I listened to. Um, and they were talking about how this is not the, the game that you, basically what you're saying, right? Like that Half-Life has always been about pushing new technology and that this was a VR game first. And then af after they'd already you know had this idea for a VR game, they kind of applied the Half-Life IP to it. Um, but the, the, the technology is such that they really couldn't ever bring it just to, to consoles without VR, just as a, a regular game on your TV, because the amount of, even if you did it on mouse and keyboard, the amount of buttons that it would take to do just like a simple motion of opening a door would be just so wildly complex, they couldn't do it. So that was, it's interesting to see them, to see that Valve at least believes that the future is VR. Yeah, and it's it's odd, but also I wasn't aware that this had started off as just a, a game, and then Half-Life had been mapped over the top of it, because that's that always makes me feel better because I don't have the hardware to, to, to program. I don't have a VR headset, so and I, I'm not going to buy one to access this. And it kind of makes me feel better that this needn't have been a Half-Life game. You know, this this is a game that started off as, as something separate from Half-Life and maybe lent itself to it, but it isn't. You know, it is this kind of separate thing. Um, it's... Yeah. Well, I mean, to be clear, I, my understanding of the interview and the way they talked about it was they wanted to make a VR game. They wanted to make like they were talking about how there there wasn't really a, a big like like hardware selling VR game out there. There wasn't a this is the game that will sell sell the hardware to you. And they wanted to make that. And they started, you know, experimenting and talking about things in VR. And they started thinking about what kinds of IP they could apply to it. And they thought about both Half-Life and Portal. And they decided that Portal would be terrible in VR. <laughs> <laughs> just, just make people pass out. Um, and so they, they took Half-Life 2. Uh, this is all, again, from Jeff Keighley's uh, Final Hours interview with them. Um, but they basically took like all the Half-Life 2 assets and basically just slapped them into VR and started experimenting to see what was interesting and what worked and what they could what they could do to kind of advance it. So that's that's sort of the progression that they described. So I think I think it is still I think they they would probably argue argue with you that this is still like, you know, necessarily a half-life game in turn. Like they're trying to do the IP justice. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm um, sure. But what, but, I, what but I, I guess also, more it's more that um, 
I mean, you were talking about like you know it's too grand to play the ideal level of this game, but you know, and, it, and it's odd to apply you know an idea like the ideal of this game to a game. And again, it's not Half Life Three, but it is the first Half Life game in a period of time. It's like you know, it's like twelve years of people asking every day. When is the next Half-Life? When is the next Half-Life? But a lot of people have idealised what this game will be. And it is a game that is going to only be available to a very small number of people. That, that is, I mean, not for me personally, but, you know, that, that question, when is the next Half-Life, has been ever-present throughout my entire professional life. And we've finally got one now. And it is, and it's kind of like at the top of a very tall tree and only a few people are going to be able to reach it. And yes, I mean, Maybe this is going to be the system seller for, for VR, which is also quite an interesting concept. Because Valve was always very clear about they didn't believe in system sellers for VR. Um, but, uh, I, I saw Chet Fadashek give a talk years and years ago now, but this was when he was kind of very much pushing HTC Vive and VR, <laughs> and he said VR does not need killer apps. Like killer apps are not the way that the, the VR should go. It should have. It's about expressing the kind of the wide number of ways in which uh, VR can be applied and, and there won't be one thing to sell hardware but maybe maybe there is maybe it's reached a point now where, where Valve actually thinks that you do, you do need to give, give a reason to, for people to put down the sort of money to, to buy the, the, the highest fidelity hardware now. So I have, this is a single anecdote. I have a friend who uh, saw saw this come out and sent me a text and said, hey, can I come over and play Half-Life Alex when it comes out? And I said, yes, absolutely. And he said, great. Um, you know, my, my partner and I were looking online and we were trying to decide if we needed to put down 400 for an Oculus Quest or something. <laughs> um, so yeah. if I did not have the index, I'm fairly certain that this friend of mine would absolutely buy a Quest to play this game. Um, that's a single anecdote. Do you think Do you think this will? Like, I mean, I, I don't think this will sell Valve indexes, well, like, but do you I, think this could potentially sell like Quests? Well, answer this question first, Rebecca, because you've used the index. I haven't. I don't think you have, have you, Hayden? I have my my my. <laughs> so I was, I was going to say something very very mean about VR then, but I'll just say no instead. <laughs> okay. So Rebecca, you have used the index controllers. You've got this kind of next level finger tracking, grip pressure, all of that. Uh, I don't know if you've used Oculus Quest, but I know Oculus Quest Quest doesn't have that. What, in your opinion, would be the difference between? Let's just give Valve the benefit of the doubt, and they're going to make like a best-in-class get interactive experience. What what difference does it make between Index and Oculus Quest? Like, if someone's like, well, I, think- I can't afford an Index, I'll just buy an Oculus Quest. How how big a difference is there between those two experiences, at least potentially? Well, I think the difference is, and I, I don't know if this has changed already, but I think it's it's going to lessen somewhat here soon. Because if I remember correctly, at one of the recent Oculus events, they announced that um, Quests, uh, like Oculus headsets, are getting updated to full hand tracking. So no no controllers in the hand, but it will track your your hand movements fully. Which I, I was talking to Brendan about this actually, and I was thinking, wow, that sounds like a million times better than the Valve Index. Why did they even bother? But he pointed out that the thing about the Index is it has straps that hold your hand onto it. So you let go, it still tracks your fingers like the Quest does. But when you close your hands, um, you're holding something, and that leaves room for things like haptic feedback and for it to sense your pressure and things like that. So I think in terms of actions that you can perform in VR, I think that the difference is 
shrinking very quickly. Um, I do think that there's still a difference in terms of how how the kinds of responses that you as the player receive and the kinds of like, you know, kinds of like way you can detect sort of what you're holding and how, how realistic, I guess it feels. Um, there's also like the basic stuff, like the index is, you know, more high fidelity. You can read text more easily, but it's also, you know, I have a fairly small living room. I have to rearrange my furniture every time I want to play a VR game. But isn't, um, but isn't <laughs> indexes finger tracking and Oculus uh, is not finger tracking? That seems like a significant difference to me. I think, I think the quest is, Pushing for in like I think it's I think it's like full hand. I would have to I'd have to actually look it up and see exactly yeah, well, what the specifics I, I, are. But I, mean, I think I, I'm not like an expert on VR, but I thought there was a difference between hand tracking and finger tracking in terms of. Oh, sorry. I think I'm using. That. I think I'm not not phrasing it correctly. I I think it can track hands and individual finger uh, motions, but also like I I would have to go look it up to see if that's accurate. And also, I haven't actually used the quest or seen that in action. Um, the index from what I've used of it is like reasonably accurate um, with finger tracking, and like it feels good. So I don't know how that would compare to the quest, but I, I think the gap is shrinking, and I think that's a good thing. I don't. It doesn't sound like if you got, you know, the quest for Half-Life Alex that you would be missing out on just some $600 crucial yeah. element of the experience. But I think that, um, that's key for me. But yeah. I, I do think it's odd because, you know, it's easy just to transition to a talk about just the general state of the art. But this is actually about one specific product with an absolutely, you know, titanic IP attached to it. Um, and a product in many respects, whether it's half through or not, that people have been waiting for for more than a decade. Um, I do think it's important that it seemed, there seems to be an importance to it being to to an excellent version of this experience to being somewhat more accessible um, than the price of the index would would indicate. Right. But, but, but if, if, if Valve's goal is to get as many people into VR as a whole as possible, that's admirable as long as it's not an experience that only if you have the index do you really kind of get the, the, the excellent, ultra, best ever VR experience that they're obviously want this to be, really. Yeah. And I would suspect that that maybe is their goal, just kind of based on what they've said when I went to the index reveal event and sort of listened to the things that they had to say about it. They they were very aware that the Valve Index is not a headset that's just going to fly off the shelves. Like, they, they know it has a high price point. They're, they also seemed aware that yeah oculus because the, the quest came out shortly after shortly after that like they're they're aware that people are doing a lot of things on the lower end to get more people into vr more cheaply their goal was essentially to create a piece of technology that some people would buy um that would allow developers to do things in vr that they hadn't been able to do before so you know the again like the finger tracking um the really high fidelity um some of the the so some of the other like little nitpicky technology things um, that it can do. There were also va- various like kind of experimental features that we looked at. Like like there were some camera things. There's the weird frunk on the front of the headset. I'm not I'm not so I'm not very involved in, in understanding like kind of how all that technology works and what it could potentially mean for developers. But the the people that I've spoken to seem optimistic about the potential of the index. The the big hang up that I I think I still see is that you still need to have the majority of developers can't just sort of throw a lot of money into experiments, um, so especially in VR, because they need to pay off at some point. 
And so it, if you have like some kind of backing or support, like uh, like the folks who did Aperture Hand Labs, um, like having Valve kind of behind them, uh, they were able to get really experimental with that and do all sorts of interesting things. And Valve will be able to do that, I'm sure, with Half-Life Alex as well. Um, but it, it's, it doesn't quite remove as many barriers as I think they would like it to, yeah, but it does. It's true. It's pushing the technology forward. But I think what, what we are, well, I mean, you know, I, I guess there's two sides to this, but I think it's arguable whether what VR needs is lots and lots of experiments right now. I think actually what it needs probably is something like what Valve is now making. Um, it needs, I mean, because, you know, until now, the, 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 the big hits of VR have been kind of breakout stuff. You know, it's been like Beat Saber, um, stuff that's kind of come out of nowhere. Uh, the, the whole concept of the AAA VR game never really took off. And, and it can't be denied that the, the games that sell systems generally fall into that bracket. So I am really happy that the Valve, and you know, Valve may be doing some genuinely crazy uh, experimental stuff, but you know what, I doubt it. I reckon it would just be an unbelievably highly finessed, smart, uh, immersive, full-scale experience of the kind that very, very few people, if, if anyone other than Valve, can actually afford to make in VR anymore. You know, like Valve doesn't really... Oculus kind of backs a lot more development than, than Valve does, and if Valve sinks all of its de- development budget into this one game, try and make like the, the best VR experience you can you can buy, then more power to them, because I actually think that that's what VR needs. It needs, it needs fewer of the very, very small games made by companies with very little money, and it needs that kind of blockbuster showpiece product, which, which really just hasn't been there up until now. Hayden, you've been notably silent this entire segment. Is it, is it just a, a latent <laughs> hatred for like Half-Life? Is it, is it it's, just VR it's basically general? It's basically because I have nothing good to say about VR. Like, <laughs> I just I just don't care about it at all. Um, and I struggle to kind of have anything remotely interesting to say about it as a result. Like, What's your when relationship I play game, to my relationship with half-life is i mean i came to them kind of a bit later i think than most people so when i played them i was like yeah these are good but they seem kind of unremarkable um like i enjoyed them uh i wasn't playing them like as they were releasing as they were as these games were you know actually kind of setting the pace and being genre defining i was playing them sort of four or five years after they'd come out and i was like yeah they're good i enjoyed those those were fun yeah. that's a video game that's a video game <laughs> well, I think that's so, a really that's a really interesting point though right that, that this is old shit now right Half-Life it's really old old game like, most people I, I you know i can remember episode two coming out being really excited by it. that is a generation ago i mean it's it's such a it's such an odd thing that, you know, I carry this kind of reverence for the name of Half-Life, but, but I mean, not that many people are really going to have that sort of fresh sense of excitement for it. And, and I'm interested as much as anything to see how much traction Half-Life still has, apart from among a fairly, you know, small group of, yeah, frankly, largely, you know, white males who are 18 to 34 around the time that Half-Life was a thing. You know, the Half-Life hasn't been a thing for a long time, and that is largely because Valve refused to treat it as a thing for a long time. Um, and the thing is, like, Valve, over since Half-Life, it hasn't really proven itself to be a particularly, like, innovative or, like, forward-thinking developer. We had Artifact, which was a car crash, to put it lightly, Dota 2, <laughs> Dota 2 is successful, but very much overshadowed by League of Legends. Um, what else have they really 
done over like the last sort of 15 years i suppose yeah portal yeah yeah but they're both games that similar to half-life i think there were huge communities that would have loved to have seen <laughs> left for Dead three and portal three but and you know, they're, they're all just stopped making those games. You know, they're old games now as well. Like Port- yeah. Portal Two is what twenty eleven that came out. Yeah. Like the point is, it, it's been you know nearly a decade since. Like we haven't seen much from Valve basically over the last decade. Yeah. So it's like we don't really have we don't really have much of a way to kind of measure what their development chops are actually like. You know, fifteen years ago when they were making revolutionary games, that was fifteen years ago. Like mm-hmm. who's who's even at the studio anymore? Um, well, they picked up they picked up Campo Santo recently, okay. um, the fire the Firewatch yeah. folks, and who were making a game called In the Valley of the Gods, and we haven't heard about that. I think that was supposed to release like this year or something. Yeah. We haven't heard about that it, and apparently out. some of the Cant- Campo Santo folks are working on Half Life Alex. Hmm. So you know, I, who knows? I wouldn't be entirely surprised if that was half the reason why Campo Santo agreed to be acquired. You know, like do you want to come over <laughs> here and help us make Half Life? I think one of the things that is quite um, interesting about this and this is to what you're saying hey like it's been been a good decade since valve was like at, at the cutting edge or or the pinnacle of what you consider sort of like you know blockbuster game development but the nature of what a blockbuster game is has changed so much and half-life alex does for all the world look like it's going to be a sort of a five-hour linear narrative adventure with shooting in it you know like i'm i'm I sure believe, it's going to have like way more hours. Kind of stuff it's... in it than that but they said not... it was the same length as Half-Life 2. Oh, wow. So too long, like, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least four hours too long. Jesus. That's, like tw- that's like 20 hours long. Uh, okay, fair enough. But I, I guess like the length doesn't matter so much. It's just that is no longer what a cutting-edge game is. You know what I mean? Like That's mm. what a cutting-edge game used to be. And I suppose once you add the VR layer, if they can do interesting things with that, then... I'm very interested what it is. Um, and I guess, yeah, looking at the trailer, I was, I was very intrigued. But I take your point, Hayden. It's, it's difficult to, to know how excited to be about kind of coming back to the table after a decade away, the decade in which they've not really done anything that, that well, I mean, I guess those two being the exception, but certainly not, not proven their chops over and over again in terms of being able to really make a killer game. Also, I, I I very very strongly believe that it's impossible to make a game worth playing that you can't also drink a cup of tea with at the same time, and that <laughs> and that is the entire problem with VR. So yeah, yeah like in, until they fix that, which would involve it not being in VR. So, um, so yeah, just... VR needs to add tea tracking technology before Aiden is going to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think then finger tracking, then cup of tea tracking. I, I think it needs to remove the headset and reintroduce the uh, sofa and controller into the dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> the next, the, the, the bold future of gaming is uh, right there at 100%. <laughs> I suppose you could introduce some sort of straw, maybe. Um, some sort of really long sort of uh, hydraulic straw that like pumps the tea up so that... Do not like one of those give novelty- gamer merchandise companies something else to try to sell it. could be like one of those novelty hats where you strap two beer cans to either side. There could be like a thermos on the ear of the headset. With straw you know what? That, I would... That might overcome a lot of the problems that I have with VR. No! <laughs> it's index 2, All that's right. it. That's the, that's the 
All right. Well, to move on to our final topic in a game that you can both drink tea while playing and that also has a lot of characters drinking tea in it because it's set in a region based on the UK, it's Pokemon Sword and Shield. Um, they launched a week ago. Uh, they're selling just piles of units. Uh, I think it was like six million sold worldwide in the first three days. Is the stat we got yesterday? Um, it's the biggest Nintendo Switch launch yet. Is that right? I believe um, so. And uh, I think it beat out Smash Brothers Ultimate. Um, but to think, like a few weeks ago, there was worry that they might suffer even a little bit, given all that controversy about them not bringing all the old Pokemon into the new games. Um, that was a pretty noisy controversy. It's still going on. Um, but given the sales figures, do we think Game Freak changes anything meaningful next time? Do they even need to? No? No. This is um, this is the first mainline Pokemon game that I've not bought at launch, though. Um, because, uh, I don't know, like I read some reviews and it's like, it's kind of just more Pokemon and they're, the Pokemon are big now sometimes. And I don't know. I just okay. The big Pokemon are great. Hey, do not knock the big Pokemon. The, the, I love the big Pokemon. The spectacle <laughs> creep of kind of post Gen Six Pokemon has been <laughs> the nah, thing that's, that's really kind of put me off the franchise. So like, I'll pick it up eventually. But yeah, I'm 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 less enthusiastic about this Pokemon than I have been about any in the past, really, which is a shame. But I don't I don't think Game Freak is really gonna change its tune or change its approach going forward because i mean it's been insanely successful and those people uh you know like petitioning donald trump to ban the sale of pokemon <laughs> because there's no uh, like i it's it's the worst kind of elements of modern gaming culture and i don't think any publisher should pay any heed to that and i don't think any any publisher or, or developer with any sense will because frankly it's just insane man babies crying about nothing and i i don't i don't really know why they would like it it's an insanely successful game and i don't think there's anything to be gained from like pandering to these people yeah well i think you know that game freak has whatever somewhere in the region of about 400 million reasons in the form of do all the dollars it's made from selling copies of its game <laughs> to ignore all of the people that threw their toys exactly. at the ram and had a had a big had a big cry over the way they were being left behind um it's the thing is this if game freak was genuinely doing anything negative against its community it wouldn't have sold the amount of games it just sold it wouldn't have got the reviews it's got like i mean and you know whether or not it fits exactly with what you want from a Pokemon game anymore. Yeah, it's a well-reviewed game. It's a good game. It's a well-made game. Um, whether or not it is exactly the way you want a Pokemon game to be. I, I feel like we just hit a, a point in time when the, the louder people shout, the, the more people, the more we tend to, to take them seriously in terms of what they're saying. And I think like Hayden said, like this is, it's a, it's an outpouring of a certain aspect of, of online culture, which should just be roundly ignored. And, if, if you need any more proof than that, all you can do is look at look at the commercial performance, and it's absolutely killed it. So you can only say the Game Freak has done exactly right by it. you know because there were there were petitions against this thing, and if that really mattered to people, then surely we'd have sold fewer copies than the last Pokemon. But the opposite has been true. So uh, you know the 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 attempt to undermine the success of this game obviously has no basis in any reality that enough people feel um, and fair enough you know i mean rebecca i i know that you've been playing it is it 
is it? I mean, what, what, what? Is there anything to all of the the, the furore around it? All of the the, the myriad ways the scene is, is accused of having abandoned its uh, core community. I so I have I have a lot of actual like strong opinions about this that do not involve writing petitions to Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Um, I I think that the series has come a long way in the last couple of years, and especially with this latest entry in terms of quality of life, streamlining things, um, having re- just really good monster designs. I love the Pokemon designs for this generation. Like every single one of them is just fa- fantastic and hilarious. Um, it's it's a fun game to just play through. Like there's, yeah, there, there's some annoying, like kind of technical things The the wild areas, one of the big like features that they touted as being like this, you know, big deal. You just walk out there. There's just these giant Pokemon everywhere. Um, it's cool. But when you go online, it lags like hell. It's kind of annoying. Uh, th- there, there are various like little things like that. Like it's not, it's not a breath of the wild level, gorgeous game. Um, I think, I think for the last several generations, um, there's been kind of a, a sort of bubbling under the surface of people who have been playing this series for a long time of wanting a little bit more from it, you know, and I think Rob touched on this in his column this week. It was a really good column about, you know, kind of how Pokemon has had to, has had the wonderful and sometimes difficult problem of having to cater to a lot of different um, like divisions of fans, basically with different priorities. And I think a, a certain segment of people who have been here for a long time have started playing other kinds of games as well. And I think coming onto the Switch, there was sort of a, uh, not not a thought that was really instigated by anything Game Freak had ever said, but sort of a thought that, well, Zelda had its Breath of the Wild moment. Uh, Mario had Mario Odyssey, which was, you know, different from Breath of the Wild, but still very much a, you know, a big jump onto the Switch. Like, look at all these cool things that you can do. Look at all these, you know, big, huge things that we have done with the series. And I think there was sort of an expectation that we would get that with Sword and Shield. And we got, we got Let's Go. And Let's Go was a very contained, you know, some quality of life improvements, but very like straightforward Pokemon from 3DS translated to Switch. And there were sort of reassurances back then that, yeah, this is just, you know, kind of us getting a feel for the Nintendo Switch and we're going to do something much bigger with Sword and Shield. And so I think that feeling of disappointment that this really is, you know, it's bigger in a few ways, but for the most part, yeah, it's just a Pokemon game put on the Switch. I think there's I think there's a, a meaningful amount of disappointment there. And I'm, I'm a little disappointed too, because I, I do remember a time when I was a kid and I remember, you know, finding things that I thought were secrets in the game or like seeing a door that was locked and wondering, oh, how do I open this? You know, is this going to open if I catch a certain Pokemon or if I, you know, unlock a certain thing in the game? And I, I remember, you know, swapping those stories with my friends around the lunch table and, you know, eventually going online and finding communities where people could tell me, oh, here's how to access Mirage Island. Like, here's how to do all these secret things. And I remember that kind of feeling of mystery. And as the games have gotten, have moved into 3D and gotten more complex in terms of how they looked and, you know, how they were made, there's been less room to have kind of these big explorable worlds and these kind of, kind of like mysteries um, behind them. And I think, I think people are, you know, maybe a little bit sad about that. And I think, I think it's a valid feeling. Like I'm a little sad about it, yeah, but I mean, it's about, you know, it's, it's feeling, a video game. But I think it's a video the, game. The thrust of what Rob was saying is it's valid to be disappointed with any game, but it's not valid to assume that, that your, your whim, your demand is the only one that's truly important. And the, what you were saying about Rob, Rob being, Rob, what Rob was saying about, Pokemon has been played by various people in various ways since the 90s. And all of those people have gone in very different directions because it's sort of an easy, you know, it's a sort of, a, it's on, on its face, it's a, it's a casual game, it's very welcome, it's colourful, it's, it's all of these things. And those people have gone in very different directions, they all have different 
they all have different demands from a game now. And I think I think this idea that because Zelda went in the Breath of the Wild way, should we expect that from Pokemon? That is on it. That is on one level just the gaming community completely misreading what the value of Pokemon is um, and what the real community of Pokemon is. You know, it's it's not Zelda. It's a completely different game. And, and I think Breath of the Wild proved that what people were waiting for from Zelda was that treatment. But is that what people were waiting for from Pokemon? I think that's the question. And it is a really great column, and, and people should go and read it. One of the conclusions he draws is, you know, when, when you've got enough people being upset about something, you can, it can feel like you are, what you feel is everything. Um, but, but realistically, um, Nintendo and Game Freak are not saying this, but it, some parts of the community and what they want have to be left behind because they're not, it doesn't make financial sense, it doesn't make commercial sense, and it would be going against what, what actually is the majority of the community, what they actually do want. So changing a game wholesale to fit with the, the whims of 20% people, even if those 20% really do feel like they are the core or the faithful, um, it, it's just not the way this can, can be for a, for a franchise that's been long, as long-running as Pokemon has now. You know, this is this is kind of like 20, 30 years of, of built-up uh, expectations and, and associations that you can't possibly satisfy everybody. And, and it behooves us all to not get really fucking angry and start petitions when things don't line up with the way we want them to be. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's a curious uh, artifact of the modern world that we have to have to endure all these petitions all the time. Yeah, and I would I would argue too that one of the points he makes is that a lot of the decisions they've made with these games have been to not necessarily like they, they talk about oh well the games are you know so much easier now or whatever which is one not true but also a lot of the decisions they have made have been to cater not to young kids but to busy adults and I think. I very much agree with that with Sword and Shield and have experienced that myself in the gameplay. I am a busy adult. I don't, I can't pour 200 hours into a Pokemon game anymore like I could when I was a kid. Um, but I, the, the ways they have changed up this game make me feel more comfortable playing it um, in the context of my current lifestyle. And I, I like that. I appreciate that. It, it worked out for me. I feel bad for the people who it didn't work out for, but also like, there's other video games. Yeah, yeah, right. I think there, there yeah. might be more than one video game definitely appreciate like some of the quality of life changes that I've seen uh, talked about seem like long, long overdue. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that kind of speaks to what you were saying, Rebecca, about how it's for busy adults. Like, I, who the hell has time to find out where like all the move tutors and like name changes <laughs> and stuff are? It's uh. it's so laborious and it's so needless. Um, and like, I, I kind of to the breath of the wild point, like there was a part of me that was hoping for a shot in the arm in the way that breath of the wild or Mario Odyssey helped mix things up. Not necessarily like a complete redefining of what a Pokemon game is, but just a little bit more than here's more Pokemon. Um, and in terms of like the missing Pokemon from the Pokedex, as long as like Gudra and Scyther are still in there, I'm I'm happy. Like that's kind of all I really ask for. I don't think Scyther's in what? there. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, no, fuck it. I don't care. Game Freak is dead to me. Gudra is. That's Gudra that's is. not enough. You can't you can't, you can't you can't salvage like my. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm genuinely a little bit devastated about that. No, wait, what was that petition? What was that? 
Pokemon. Yeah, we need to cancel Pokemon. I'm going to go we find. Cancel Pokemon. I'm going to go sign my name in blood on that petition right now. <laughs> this is the most important thing. <laughs> I am I'm a little right. bit genuinely devastated about that, but if, I, I'm so sorry to have ruined your day. Is, is Jolteon still in there? Please tell me Jolteon. Yes. Okay. Yes. E- Evie and all of this evolution made Two it. two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> All right. Well, since we're now canceling Pokemon, I think that's probably enough time to wrap it up. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to uh, go and can... mourn. <laughs> you can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms. Once you're on that good podcasting platform, consider subscribing so it'll let you know whenever another episode appears. And you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz. Thanks, everybody. 